1: Hey, everyone, welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have another edition of the Adult Improver series. Uh, A lot of you probably already know what that means. But what it means is that on this particular episode, we The goal of helping you improve at your chess takes um, even higher precedence than on a regular episode. So we want to feature someone who can help provide a template for motivated adult players to get better at chess. And we have a great guest to help us with that. Uh, our guest today is a US, uh, U.S. chess master. He recently won the Oregon State of Oregon Championship um, at the age of 18 as a freshman in college. He was rated about 1,200. And now he is a U.S. chess master about 11 years later, give or take. He's also a senior software engineer at Nike, so the rest of his life has been busy as well, but accomplishing great things in the chess world. Uh, Jason Segan, thank you for joining us.
0: Thanks, Ben, for having me.
1: So congratulations on the state championship. Before we were recording, we were... um, lamenting that your trailblazers and my 76ers lost today but we won't we won't bore our listeners with with that sad tale
0: but i will note that my voice is still a little bit hoarse from yelling so loud at game three right yeah you know it's water under the bridge
1: yeah what can you do uh we'll we'll try to stick to chess improvement rather than uh basketball improvement so oregon state champion um been playing since at least seriously since college but jason how did you initially get into chess
0: Well, it was forced upon me a little bit. Uh, I believe my brother and I were quite young when my parents wanted to find new ways to test us out a little bit. They were surprised to see how early my brother learned to read, and they wanted to give us something else that we might find fun and challenging, and uh, chess was what we landed on. It was something that my grandfather greatly enjoyed to play. So I actually learned at the age of, I believe, four or five, and... There's a photo of me playing my brother when we both look quite small anyway. And uh, I really liked it from an early age and I wanted to pursue it more. I just, I have to say at a young age, I wasn't aware that this world of tournament chess existed. I knew it mostly as a game I would play with schoolmates. And when my parents told me I was going to chess camp for summer or any such event, I always felt a little thrill and, I got more into it at each stage of school. Um, in high school, I joined my school's team, and we won a state championship. In college, I met um, some good friends, one of whom you know, Jeremy Kane, uh, who talked me into joining the school team. And uh, had. that was really where I had my chess renaissance, when I really discovered this whole new world, to uh, a tournament chess world where I could succeed, and uh, I really didn't care so much about what age I was getting into it at. I just knew that I enjoyed it then. And uh, it was what made me excited to get off my schoolwork for the day was getting to work on chess a little more.
1: Yeah. And it is something it's a game, obviously, that that can strike the fancy of anyone at any age. Um, And I had a similar background story to you, where Mm -hmm. I knew the game existed, but didn't know tournaments existed for a long time after Mm -hmm. that, as a kid. But but yeah, that then at some point, it just kind of sinks its teeth into you. Um, yeah. So did you grow up? You live in Portland, in the Portland, Oregon area. Is that where you grew up as well?
0: Yeah, I'm an Oregon kid from the start. Uh, my, I was born in the Bay Area, like about half of Oregon was. But uh, my parents moved here when I was just a couple months old. And uh, I grew up in the suburbs. I went to college in Chicago. But other than that. Uh, I've lived in Oregon most of most all of my life, but I've traveled elsewhere f- for chess and for other reasons. And uh, I like to think of myself as someone who maybe uh, hasn't necessarily been constrained to know that scene. But uh, it is very much uh, part of my fabric of, you know, the upbringing I've had.
1: OK. And so uh, in college, uh, Jeremy and others convinced you to join the chess team. And cool. um, obviously you went to U of Chicago, right?
0: Yeah, and I should say, Jeremy, I only met after I joined. His reputation preceded him as sort of the head honcho on the chess team, the strongest player. Um, yeah, he's over, he was over 2,400 USCF. He was very encouraging, when I, he was very encouraging once I joined. And, okay. uh, yeah, I still talk with him about chess yeah, quite often. And he was he uh, he really sort of, uh, uh, more so than other players on the team, I think he really... Uh, got a thrill out of chess as well. And sort of, we, we we both sort of sense that each other had that enthusiasm for the game. I don't think a lot of the other guys from that team still play.
1: Yeah, um, I can see that because I'm internet yes. friends with him. He's one of, one of these people. Uh, I think we all have friends like this where I haven't, I haven't met him in person, but I mean, we've corresponded about chess mm-hmm. a bit and we follow each other on Twitter and stuff like that. And I know mm-hmm. that he has a newborn baby, but is still posting chess positions. So, <laughs> so that's how I know he's hardcore.
0: You know? Yeah. He, he, he made it up. I know it was really a goal of his to make it uh, to make chess part of his his profession, his daily life. And he's done great at it.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, mm-hmm. So you're at U of Chicago, you know, academically rigorous institution. Um, <laughs> yeah. But you're able to spend some time on chess as well. Like how much. So well, once it really got into you in college, how much time were you able to,
0: to spend on it? Enough time has passed since college for <laughs> me to admit that i most it's more the case that I did the chess instead of the schoolwork. Yeah. For and,
1: me, yeah. For yeah. me, It was too much, too much, too many video games, too much. FIFA. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, for me, chess was my video game, you okay. know, blitz, how different is blitz on the internet from a video game? Really? Yeah, Not much. And, <laughs> and, uh, to me, it was almost an escape from the stresses, not just of schoolwork, but just of expectation. You know, it was a time when the economy was bleak, when everyone wondered what they were going to be doing after graduation. And maybe, uh, I demurred all of those questions and just was like, you know, let me read books. Let me play chess. Because I also had a great love for literature, which is a little beside the point. But it it kind of was a bridge hobby to chess. So and, this uh, is
1: uh, circa financial crisis of
0: 2008? Yeah, the okay. Great Recession. And so really, uh, I don't want to paint this false picture of myself as some, you know, person who's succeeded at everything I've touched. Because really, uh, college was a struggle for me. Uh, it shaped who I became. And, uh, you know, the thing like being a developer, as anyone who was Facebook friends with me uh, about five years ago can tell, I used to, uh, most of my Facebook content used to be stories from my life as a convenience store manager. And uh, that was where I was working when I was really just living a passion for chess and playing a lot of tournaments and uh, was working on becoming a programmer on the side. So, yeah, yeah, so in college, it was really like, a thrilled, to sort of, a uh, escape from stresses.
1: Okay. Well, I mean, listeners hang in there. We'll get to chess in, in a moment, <laughs> but, but I have to ask, so how do you go from being working at a convenience store to being a, uh, senior software engineer within five years?
0: You know, it's kind of going to be the same answer that I'll ultimately give about how I came from being a 1000 rated chess player to 2200. You don't really think about, uh, you don't really think about where you're going. You don't really think about, uh, the odds or whatever. It's just, I enjoyed both was the secret. And like, I just progressively got jobs that were a little bit more techie, like, you know, like jobs that really didn't pay much more than minimum wage that were maybe like social media management or online advertising account management that just made me a little more presentable while I learned, I went to some classes, I did some stuff on the internet. So it was just, it, it really was the same thing as chess. And I'll make that tie in that it was sort of a self study motivated less by my desire to really be like less by some like ungodly work ethic and more just that I really liked studying chess and I really liked studying code.
1: Cool. Yeah. I hope you're not offended. I told uh, the the supporters, the Patreon supporters of the, the podcast and you know, I looked up your rating graph and I'll share a yeah. link to that in the show description. And I described you as a uh, more tortoise than hare.
0: Um, <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's, it's often gradual. These yeah. jumps
1: and yeah. I. Yeah. Slow and steady over 10 straight years, basically. I mean, of course there's a few plateaus like with any chess player, but, and I should say like, it's,
0: I think that's how a lot of people are. And that's also a factor of a lot of things. I mean, younger players tend to improve in much more rapid ways. um, And, you know, I don't have the science background necessary to say that, but there's a lot of reasons for that. And some of it's probably biology. And Uh, But to me, it's just the way you improve is, I mean, Alexander Lenderman, I'll, I'll name drop a very strong GM. I remember reading somewhere that he once played something like 400 tournament games in a year and gained one point for the year or something. So it's like, it's not as if the people who succeed at chess are ungodly talented. It's just, you know, a lot of them, it's just the work ethic and the passion. And I have no doubt that if I got enough years in life to keep playing. Like, why couldn't I get to a grandmaster level? You know, it's slow and steady.
1: Yeah. So, so let's dig into, to what you did do. So, mm. so you're in college and you, you know, you're having fun playing online mm. and developing a yeah. camaraderie with the other kids who play, who play yeah. on the college team. Um, and mm. so
0: where, what level were you by the time you left college? Well, I should say by the time I started college, my USCF rating was about it was about a thousand sixty, but that was not reflective of my actual strength. I was very uneven, but I think I had a better eye for tactics than a lot of players at level. Basically, within six months of starting to play tournaments, I was at sixteen hundred. Okay. Uh, so yeah, it wasn't one of those open shot like he's just a one thousand cases. I was like, it took me several tournaments to even get above like twelve hundred though. So. Okay. It, It did. Yeah, I did have a lot of rough patches, but there was also a lot of work that went into my chest before college at all. Like I had played a lot of high school tournaments uh, and I had I really want to highlight one important factor is there were three main places I played in chess before I even became a 1600 player. And those were when I was a very young kid learning when I was in high school playing for my team. And then when I started joining the college club and the, the common thread at all three of those places is that I had a master who was a good teacher around me at all those places. And as a kid, uh, there was a a Fide master named Charles Shuling, who I still keep in touch with and whom I got lessons from as an adult for a bit. Excellent teacher, excellent understanding of the game. His peak USCF, I believe was over 2,500. And uh, as a very young child at age of six or seven, I, got to hear a lot of his insight on chess. Now, it wasn't at a high level because these were camps meant for small children, but it was still that enthusiasm and knowledge gleaned. Uh, I was able to glean a lot of that from him. And then in high school, we had a strong master named Corbin Yu, very talented player. Doesn't play as much nowadays, but I learned a lot just being around him and hearing his insights. And then Jeremy in college. So it's really, I got to sort of become chummy with strong players everywhere I was. And I think... That's really something to treasure if you're still learning chess is if you have good friends who, uh, who are strong in chess and you're able to bond with them over a shared enthusiasm of the game. I think there's really a lot that can be handed down as oral tradition of the, our game.
1: Wow, that's yeah, that's good advice and it's good that mm-hmm. that you appreciate it. Yeah, cuz it's easy yeah. to take that sort of thing for granted as well.
0: Right. And and I'm not saying like be manipulative and find a way to con strong players into giving you free advice. I'm saying just, you know, I think a lot of people are appreciative of other people who want to learn the game and just going to tournaments is a great way to surround yourself with the type of people who like chess. A lot of places like I'm in Portland and we regularly hold events where strong masters will give analysis of weaker players games and it's totally free and a lot of places have events like these where you can learn a lot without having to break the bank or invest a ton of time and i'd recommend players take advantage of those opportunities or even on youtube i'm sure there's a bunch of good chess videos on youtube oh for sure yeah Um, or chess.com or chess 24
1: yeah these days i mean it's it's almost, it's it's just information overload more than anything, which didn't <laughs> you...
0: Yeah, use... Actually, let me name drop something else here. Is I think one of the best s- tiny pieces of advice on chess improvement. Uh, I'm going to butcher the name, but I'll just say Vidit. Uh, yeah, Gujarati. Yeah,
1: he's yes, been, he's been on know, the show. Super nice name. guy. Yeah.
0: So he Just a great player. He's over 2,700. He's young. He made about a 14-minute YouTube video about how to improve in chess and it it's very succinct he highlights a number of bullet points i agree with everything he says and i'd sort of outsource uh (laughs) the part of this of my spiel about uh what do you want to to improve just follow his Uh, so should
1: we just call the podcast off
0: yeah, no, no. All of all of some more individualized insight. Okay, yeah. I, I, you know, I'm not gonna cop out and let someone else do a talking for me. But I'd recommend that be a next place to go. Go. Okay. Go after, no. Yeah. Listen to my podcast and then go watch that video. Okay.
1: Or, good. Yeah. No. I mean, and obviously there's so many resources, and that's that's part of uh, yeah, part of why we can continually talk about something like right. this. So, what were your um like what resources other than um, receive wisdom from strong player friends of yours, were there any books or like, what was yeah. your preferred study method?
0: I really went at it with the books to the extent where, um, you know, I didn't, I was working a pretty low end job, but um, I, I would pour over the books I could avoid. And this is something that I, in a couple uh I name drop relentlessly, but it's all in the name of uh, improvement. In books by two excellent chess players and writers, Mihel Marin and Boris Gelfand, they both talk about just this affection they had for books as a kid, especially because they grew up in communist countries where they say it was very hard to get a hold of books and their parents had to barter and all these things. So to me, you know, it's not that difficult to get the books. But I really fell in love with, reading a good chess book and I'll, I'll name some specific books when the time comes, but I would really pour over them and let me name one book with a good piece of advice. Now uh, I believe it was seven deadly chess sins by Jonathan Rousen and uh, can't say enough good things about his writing. Yeah,
1: he's one of my favorites too. Yeah.
0: Especially cause he's not a typical chess writer. He, he, he's very funny. He kind of can get into stream of consciousness writing and he makes a lot of philosophical references, but he also talks about like what's going on in players' heads a lot. And when he says focus on active learning, not passive learning, that's like what I would highlight in, with a yellow pen. Just uh, read the books or do the tactics training. Just You really have to cater to whatever um, whatever your learning style is. Some people learn a lot better from watching videos because they like it more and they get a lot out of it. Uh, I sometimes watch videos, but for me, books really connect with me. And some people just want to play games. Um, There are plenty of strong grandmasters who became really good just by playing tournaments and playing online blitz. And, you know, that's not me. But if that's you and you feel that making you improve, you know, don't fight it. Um, So to me, I would read books, but really force myself to think as I read them. I think the first few I read were My System uh, by Nimzovich. The Art of Attack by Vukovic, and then I think I branched out, I read the Silman Endgame book. Uh, All books I definitely recommend, with the caveat that I think Silman mentions at a couple points that his book has all the endgames you need to know to make master, and I would encourage people to continue reading books and enjoy studying the endgame and learn a bit more than that, and they'll make master a bit faster, but it's very good.
1: Yeah, and this touches on I had said um i had sent you in advance a few questions I got from yeah. uh supporters of the podcast and one of them um was not directly uh addressed to you but I felt like this would be a good good <clears throat> uh good topic to bounce ideas off of each other sure. so just I'll read the question um, um I didn't find out if I I'm not going to say his name cuz he didn't he never got back to me so just <clears throat> who knows. So he says, uh, happy to found this podcast and support it. I'm late coming to this new interest in chess. Realistically, how far can a 62-year-old retired man progress? I just bought 100 chess books, and I've started working away. Which author should I start with? I bought all of Dvoritsky's books, as well as Spielman's Ruben Fine, John Nunn, Andy Soltis, uh, Lev Albert. It's overwhelming, really, and as of yet, I have no direction. Any advice for an older adult? I can put around 20 hours a week or so
0: since I'm retired. So, okay. Let me first stop and say, to me – and I might go ahead and highlight this as a reason for the success I've had at this tortoise pace I'm going at is I don't think about the ceiling thing. It's not something that factors into my calculus here. I don't know. And I don't care how far I can go in chess. I don't see any reason to put a ceiling on it. Maybe in a higher sense, there's some law of nature that I can't get past insert rating here. 2,300, 2,400, 2,500, 2,600. I really don't believe in it. If I had infinite financial resources and could just become a chess hermit and study nonstop and go hit the gym to stay in good physical playing shape, you know, who knows how far I could go. But that's not life. There's other things I want to do. Uh, I think it's good for this listener not to think about how far they can go. Uh, I see no reason they can't get to wherever they, wherever they want to go. Um, and I don't even need to hear how far they want to go. I think it would be foolish for them to think they can't get there. Um, and as for books, I heard a few names there. I like that more than others, and I don't want to slam specific authors, but, um, I will highlight a few. Yeah. I think I heard none come up. Did I hear none? None is great. Uh, none is One of the consistently best writers. It's hard to pick something from him that's not good. I think I've read maybe like six of his books, and I think he said one thing in all of them I really disagreed with, and that was it. That was when, and maybe it's a little silly of me to focus on the bad things, but I think this is an important point. He once said that he felt it was hard to really teach a player how to play maneuvering end games And he thought you're just born with that. And uh, I think you can definitely improve at that. <laughs> okay. Maybe I'm taking that out of context, but everything else John Nunn said is great. And he's an excellent analyst. He's a genius. He graduated, got his doctorate in math at some crazy young age, like 19. Um, and yeah, his book, understanding chess move by move is really good for players who are not yet class A.
1: Yeah. That's the Uh, one I was thinking of. Even for players
0: who are class A, often I read books that are aimed at a lower level player than me and they actually teach me more than I would expect. Uh, And that's a very good book. It, it really, it really walks you through what's happening move by move. I just today was giving my student a lesson. I only have one student now, but he's, He's really a pleasure to work with. And I used one of John Nunn's books. The publisher gave it a confusing title, John Nunn's Chess Course. It's specifically a book about Lasker's games, and that's not reflected in the title. But he uses Lasker's games as a course in in many different types of chess play, like piece activity, pawn structure imbalances. And I think it's very clear-cut games from that era before players were because there's sort of these waves of chess history and in the 60s when the soviet players came to take over they really mastered this analytical approach and uh furthered the game greatly but uh and there's a lot to learn from uh i could go on about all the different eras but specifically about from the games before that era you get to see players who did understand these higher concepts of chess strategy and dynamism like lasker Rubinstein alakine versus players who didn't and when you see that it's really stark you see these players you were ahead of their time um demonstrating all these fantastic ideals about chess and their opponents not understanding it you see the impact of that and that's really what it looks like today when a strong master beats an amateur player um so anyway uh that i think is something that really stands out about the john Nunn's chess course book which okay. I think that's probably more a class A book. But anyway, John, not, not a headlight there. Dvoretsky is an incredible chess writer. He's just some of the best out there. Um, he's really, a lot of his stuff is for more advanced players. I think he's someone you want to go right to his books when you're getting strong. Um, I don't know where to draw the cutoff. Certainly when you're 1900 or so, you can get a lot out of him. Before then, you can get a lot out of him too. It's just going to be hard.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's the best use of one's time Like before then.
0: Yeah. Dvoretsky is dense. That's You're going to have to work at that book. But really, I would say that this person not worry about quantity of books. It's great that he has those. It's great to invest. Worry about the quality, like how much you get from the book. I know some people who read maybe three books on their way to becoming an IM, and they really got a lot out of the ones they worked with. They uh, trained intensively. And I think it's very easy I would put as a word of caution to get in the habit of reading them as if you'd read like a good novel. And it's really like, you have to teach yourself how to study a chess book. You have to teach yourself to when the author says something and you're like, well, I don't understand that you sit there and you think if you can make it make sense. And if you can't, if you've got a stronger friend sitting on, you ask, Hey, why does he say this here?" If you've got a coach, you bring it to them and they'll explain it. and It'll make sense. Or you turn on the computer if all else fails. Yeah. I think that that's just an integral part of studying with a book that I believe all trainers recommend. Yeah, okay. I, all,
1: yeah. I had a couple of thoughts when hearing this question too. I mean, yeah. one of which was... uh I'm a little jealous of him. I mean, yeah,
0: no kidding. You just get to study chess all day.
1: Yeah. And it's like sort of brand new, you know, it's like when the world is opening up to you. Everyone um, has
0: that fondness for when they first discovered a real passion. It's yeah. Just discovering chess. You yeah. Know?
1: So it's an amazing thing. And then, one, when, when I started to sort of go a little deeper, like mentally think, trying to develop a framework yeah. of how I would advise to, to study, I mean, part of the question becomes. How much do you want to understand the history and the culture yeah. or versus how much do you just want to just sort of like study <laughs> hack the game, like optimize yeah. your game as much as possible? Yeah. And uh, depending on one's own sort of uh, personal preferences, I think that you could go a number of ways. Because yeah. one thing I would say, if you just want to get better at chess, I do think that some of the more systematic series yeah. is might be helpful. Like, uh yeah. Yusupov's like, books. Yeah, Yusupov's books. If you're at that, might already be a little advanced. Uh, if you're uh, the, serious, the
0: level one, the level one, maybe that that gentleman I don't know is level. If you're fourteen hundred, certainly you're ready for level one. Okay, so that's yeah. The level one is meant to be fairly. I mean, it'll be challenging for a fourteen hundred, but okay. Uh, yeah, the level one is meant to be. They're meant to be like a pathway up to being ready to study devoreski. And they've won all sorts of awards. That's actually, you know, that's what I should really be plugging here. If I'm going to plug any books for a player who, okay. And this is aside from enjoyment because study chess, how you want to enjoy it. But if your goal is to get better, uh, that's the use of pods, build up your chess, boost your chess. Uh, what's the third one. There's a third verb. He uses um, evil chess evolution or something. Anyway, they're from quality chess. They're incredibly good. Um, and they're all training based. So this is what I said about embrace active, not passive learning. Um, the instructional parts of the book are short and succinct. And then they pass you right on to exercises that they're going to want to get real uh, down and dirty with. Uh, spend maybe two hours on a section of 12 exercises. And you're cheating yourself if you ever look at a position like that for a minute and say, I think I like this move and look at the answer. That's your brain cheating itself out of learning. You yeah, sit there, yeah. you think you think for as long as you'd think if you had that move in a tournament game, I'd say draw up or cut off at 10, 15 minutes because you only want to spend that much time on a move. If it's really exceptional in a chess game. Um, but up to that point, you work as hard as you can at getting the answer. You solve all of them before you look at the answer. So you don't accidentally look at the answer to the wrong problem and you you'll you'll make such big strides because the answers are a course unto themselves they elucidate what happens in the games they explain it and you get to compare that against what you actually did and how you evaluated it that's where the real learning happens it's there's such a difference between the learning process where you look at a chess game and you follow it you're like ah these moves are good and you you say that after seeing the moves but when you force yourself to guess the moves when you force yourself to work to solve the problems yourself and then you see what the strong players say that's that's where the learning happens
1: yeah for sure and you
0: can make that happen when reading any book you can co- i actually often will cover cover up the score sheet at a certain point when the position looks very complex and I'll I'll put 5 10 minutes on the clock and try to make a move myself and that's an easy way to improve that's always going to work that's always going to help
1: yeah um yeah and there's a couple other series he could check out as well the step series of course we've talked about a lot here it's it's a little bit i personally i use it as a teacher but it's a little mm-hmm. bit dry for self which one is this it's um it's called the steps series it's from i don't uh, know of that one it's Who's from it the about? netherlands um it's from a uh, rob weingarden and Oh my god! I can't believe I'm not going to get his name right. This is uh, this is a book I don't know, so I okay. would. Okay, it's a series of six book. books. I didn't. I have to. When I started this podcast a couple years ago, I didn't know it much to mm-hmm. my um, embarrassment. But it's mm-hmm. um, a great teaching resource, and and the, the they've used it to train a lot of high level Dutch players. And basically, the idea is to sort of take you from zero to twenty two hundred. Um, sure, yeah, and they've and, got and they've got you know teaching manuals slash learning manuals as well as workbooks. And there's even a few. um like cds that you can practice on mm. computer so those are a possibility as well but again you're not going to get any chess history at all right. from it but i mean uh great for learning and at the very beginner level maybe the is susan, susan polgar books if you're you know yeah. if you're just just learning checkmates she's got a series that could be sure. helpful as well um, yeah, that one by your father is oh uh, yeah yeah that's a good that? one too and <laughs> that yeah. one will keep you busy for a while oh yeah <laughs> um Okay, but we also want to help out people a little further along in their chest yes. journey. Um, so, oh man, we have so much to talk about. <laughs> so uh, one thing that when I do these adult improver videos, um, Jason, is I like to kind of talk about, and we've already hit on a few of these, but just touch on a few different ways that people like to, to spend their chest time and mm-hmm. uh, for you to give your opinion um, of uh, how helpful each each aspect of potential learning is so so i'm gonna ask you to give something a rating of a scale of one to ten you know ten being extremely helpful and one being all right you know you might enjoy it but you're basically wasting
0: your time let me let me say i think that's a great exercise because i really think a lot comes out when you're put on the spot and asked to give a number let me qualify it with the sense that this is not an exact science and that these all vary from person to person. But yes, let's do it.
1: Yeah, of course. And uh, for me, just as the host, since I hear different people's opinion, it's interesting to sort okay. of... Okay, so is this
0: one to 10, the scale?
1: Yeah, one to 10. 10, okay. ten means it's super helpful and one means not so much. Okay. Let's so, have so how important is it to have a personal coach? 10. Okay. So do you work with a coach right now?
0: Uh, I have one really... I should say I've been a little bad about getting regular lessons lately, and that's because I've been focused on my job a bit, uh, which I also have the privilege to greatly enjoy. So that's not as if it's drudgery. Right. But, um, Melik Kachian is the oh, coach. Oh, wow. I lo-
1: he was yeah. an amazing guest on this show.
0: He's a he, great guy. He, he's, he's an incredible person. He's a better yeah. person than he is a coach, and he's one of the best coaches. Um, and I've also uh, – uh, you know, I could not list many other people I've paid to – give me a consultation to sort of uh sabino brunello i've also gotten lessons from and he's incredible recommended uh, by by no less than agard himself exactly and uh agard actually was the one who recommended (laughs) recommended sabino i asked agard for lessons but uh i know i knew it was a long shot he's he's a full-time very busy chess professional and you know count shankland among his students um so sabino has just been wonderful as well and I, met, I got lessons from both of them before the uh, Oregon State Championship that I won. And also, um, there's a few people I've paid for training games. Uh, I want to highlight Craig Hillby among those, a younger player, just mm-hmm. an incredibly nice guy to work with, incredibly strong player. I play training games against him now and then. And uh, it, it's a really valuable thing. This may be coming later, but if you have the money to do it, Find stronger players, like 200, 300 points stronger than you, that you can pay for training games. It's usually a little I – mean, some people will charge less than it, and they charge for lessons. some people the same. It's worth it, and it should be someone different than your regular coach.
1: Yeah, and again, if you go – listeners, if you go to the Lee Chess Coaches page, I mean, some coaches even break down different rates for yeah. tra- for training game versus lessons. And, uh, right. you know, you can find people who will do it for, you know, 10 $15, something like that. Yeah, right?
0: and I so, mean – but generally, like, you don't need to over obsess about the player's strength. I mean, I think that's a common mistake in choosing a coach. So uh, let me just plug that. I do have one student and he's actually very close to being straight. Uh He's he's now over 2100. And that wasn't the case when he started with me. But it's still a fruitful relationship. I fully expect him to pass me up and I fully expect to keep coaching him. Then I'll kick him up to someone stronger once he's you know, ridiculously stronger than me. But it's more like you can get a lot out of it that's independent of the gap in strength between you and the coach. Training games, I do think there's a certain amount, but there's definitely a large difference in quality between someone who will really try hard in the training games. Some people, I don't know, I get the sense that some people who don't charge a lot might not try their hardest. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. That's a judgment. But... Uh, make sure you make sure you get what you pay for it. make sure you get the best quality out of it.
1: Yeah, I, I don't
0: mean to insinuate that someone's rate would have anything to do with it. But definitely I, the best people are. Yeah, it makes sense. It, and like, it's a lot. Of, there's a lot of value on getting the right people for those. I mean, that that's huge. If you find somebody, you, whatever rate it is, and they really connect with you and teach you a lot that more than more than their strength difference or anything is the most important thing.
1: Okay, and that dovetails into the the next item on the list, which is uh, analyzing your games. Uh,
0: ten. Okay. Out of ten.
1: Yeah, that one. There's a pretty strong consensus that. That's consensus. Yes. Yeah. Um, next up, uh, online blitz.
0: Three or four. Okay. I would say it's good to play blitz. Um, some amount of practice chess, and I think you're. Leaving a deficiency in your game if you play blitz at a much weaker level than your regular chess. I think players like that are constrained in how good they can get. Blitz kind of, Melik once told me that blitz is a good bar of the potential for how well you could play in a longer game. And uh, I really think it's going to be hard for you to make fast decisions if you're making mistakes. Or I could say, like, I've had a student who I identified that he was pretty good in blitz. But actually where he was suffering in the shorter time controls was that he would make strategic blunders way more often in shorter games. Hmm. And so that was a really good aha moment for us. And that was why his blitz suffered. So often if blitz suffers, that's a sign of something wrong with your game. But it's easy to waste a huge amount of time on online blitz. If you play too much, it can be actively harmful to your chess. Generally, if you're playing just like some amount, say you play like A 20 minute session or 30, 40 minute session a couple times a week. That's that it's hard for that to be unhealthy. If you have really bad negative emotions from the games, that's a bad sign. You should avoid it. Like if you're getting tilted and yelling at your computer, Um, if you're playing way too many games in a row and they blend together, bad sign. Mm -hmm. If you're if you're like playing super fast in your long tournament games, bad sign. Too much blitz. Are these all coming from your college years? These, uh. these well, I stuff. didn't I, – I was – yeah, I, I played super fast up <laughs> until like really a couple of years ago, honestly, when okay. I met sure it, And even now, I tend to very rarely get in time trouble. I'm a, but I think now it's more – it's a more restrained speed. And really, the point is like Blitz does help you recognize patterns. It does help you with tactics. It does help you learn your openings. But you see I've outlined all these possible bad sides to it and it takes up a lot of time. So it's not really anything special for your chess with that time. I do think some steady stream of regular chess games outside of tournaments is good, but it's better if it doesn't come from a lot of online blitz. Yeah, Uh,
1: well said. Okay, uh, watching elite tournaments.
0: I would give a 7. Let me note that I give it a 7 because it can be a 9 or a 10 if you do it the best way, and it can be really... Not so good if you don't do it well. So I think, and this is something that Gelfon said, and I believe Vidit repeated it. Uh, In case I forget to do it later, let me plug. (laughs) Sorry, this is a little off topic. But since I mentioned Gelfon, one of the best chess books I've ever read is his book on positional chess. I haven't read his book on dynamism yet, but the book on positional chess, everyone from, say, like 1700 to 2800 can learn a huge amount about chess from it. And anyway, something that both he and Vidit say is uh, um, about watching super tournaments. If you watch them without your computer turned on, that can be an exceptional learning experience. If you're doing what I said earlier and making you follow along and guess what's going on. um, At odds with that, though, is the fact that sometimes the commentators are saying really great things. Yeah. Uh, I haven't listened to all the commentators a lot uh i know opinions may vary but it's pretty hard to beat when they had Svidler and grishuk both doing commentary (laughs) yeah james i learned so much from just watching those and that's a case where i had no problem going ahead and you know i abandoned all pretense of trying to shut the computer off and guess the moves i just loved hearing what uh, Sasha and Peter had to say yeah, entertaining and and, yeah, and, informative. Yeah, and, and they're very funny too. Yeah. So I think there's a limit to that. I mean, I'd avoid stress avoiding any kind of dogma in how you study. And so I'll say, usually I think it's incredible if you uh, are following along and trying to reason with the games yourself, it's hard for a lot of people to do that because of weird times a day, the games are on, but you know, make yourself think as you're following the games, if you're just kind of idly looking at the games let me go ahead and upgrade this to an eight, though. Okay. I think it's a good thing.
1: Yeah. Knee, okay. Um, yeah. Next up, uh, doing
0: tactics. Nine. Yeah. Nine point because point. I think there's a limit on how useful it is. I think if you're doing more than about four hours a week, and this is something that every coach I've asked about it. I've had a couple of coaches I haven't asked this. But all the ones I asked directly said there's not much use in doing it more than like four or five hours a week. If you're doing it beyond then, it's a little bit overkill. Others may disagree with that. I think that's a pretty solid advice, Hmm. just that there's only so much of it that's really, you know, at a certain point you feel yourself getting exhausted. It's good, I think, if you can put in some regular interval of it. It's like you wouldn't lift weights for, uh, you know – 10 hours a week that would be ridiculous maybe some people do but i find it ridiculous and i feel like tactics are really like you're doing heavy exercise and i think it's best to limit that a bit but it's incredibly useful you can't improve without it
1: yeah and uh um I have another question from supporter of the podcast um, related to this, so I'm just going to throw it in here. So yeah. question from Jason Willem. Thanks for the support, Jason. So Jason asks, do you think that for your busy schedule, it's better when you do when you do tactics that you're using a board and a book or just the book or online or some combination I of I really don't
0: think it matters that much. I think the it's easy for the online format to bring out bad tendencies where people are really impulsive and click-click, like Puzzle Rush is so fun. I don't think that, <laughs> I don't think it's the optimal use of five minutes of st- tactic right. study time. I think you'd be better off solving one difficult tactic in five minutes. It's so fun and I'm horribly addicted. I love it. But yeah. um, I think whatever format engages you, I hear some strong players say, ah, oh, you must set it up on a board. And I hear some people say, ah, oh, you must just use the book. I think it is probably good to make yourself not move the pieces if you set it up on the board. And that's another problem with online traders that that it lets you make one move and then it makes the opposing move and then you think again. I think, I don't really like that way of solving it. I think you should have to work 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 out your opponent's moves as by yourself without the computer's help. So that yeah, I might actually downvote the computer a bit and say books are better. Set it up on the board or whatever, or use the computer tactic and put it up. You know, find the lines yourself.
1: Yeah, for whatever it's worth, Jason. Just just uh, earlier today. Um, funny that your name Jason because I was actually addressing Jason Wollum mm-hmm. <laughs> vis-a-vis his question. So for whatever it's worth, Jason Wollum, I was just today reading Jennifer Yu wrote a nice recap of her U.S. championship victory mm-hmm. for, for Chess Summit, and I'll put a link to it. But she, she mentioned this very sort of debate, and she mm-hmm. said she's one of these people who she knows she hears the advice about using a chess set. She hardly ever does it. But mm-hmm. one thing that she did differently before winning the U.S. Women's Championship was she actually... When she did study chess, which wasn't for an outlandish amount, she said it was like an hour a day in the sure. week or two leading mm-hmm. up to it because she's like you know busy academic superstar as well. Yeah, uh, of course. But uh, but she said she did set up the set when she was studying, and she doesn't always. So <clears throat> so there you yep. have it, Jason from from high authority. Yeah. Um, um, Jason Woolem again, that is. But yeah, I agree that I'm with you that generally I think it it can't hurt to set up a set, but I'm mm-hmm. I'm not. Total, yeah. Uh, who knows how
0: indispensable it is. Also, I think there's a large variance in the quality of specific tactics. I think you're jet, almost invariably going to get higher quality tactics if you find them in a book, or unless there's some high quality, sophisticated online trainer I don't know about. Just the the online tactics can be kind of gimmicky. I mean, I think they're still very good and very helpful, but a lot of times they'll be trying to set a trap that, like, a read if they use a rating system a lot of puzzles will be unduly highly rated because there's something silly about the position. Like there's just a hanging piece you can take, or there's a move that looks like it wins, but doesn't. You have to see something better. It's like, it just feels that there's a lot of, when you're having some algorithm pick out a puzzle rather than a human who's curating them. I I just think the human curating them is going to get you a higher quality puzzle. And that's always been my experience. You can still get incredibly strong from online tactics, but my two senses if you find a good book on puzzles john Nunn's chess puzzle book for the ambitious oh, yeah, that's, a, really that's a very intense good, book yeah uh easier ones are like the ultimate chess puzzle book and the giant chess puzzle book i know they're both still on kindle i don't know if they're still in print yeah, um like in both tactics by end, yeah yeah I, I don't know about tactics time as much i haven't studied it um but uh also oh gosh i could list qual- quality chess puzzle books forever but um, books almost invariably have better puzzles than online trainers.
1: Yeah. And also you get that feeling when you finish. I mean, it, and it's a- you
0: get to read the commentary on the solution. So a human is telling you what's happening. Yeah. This wins because, you know, yeah. Okay. I, and I've always had a great interest in what if there could be a chess computer that actually says that a position is better because this and this or something that that's really the next level, or maybe that's a few levels away uh, as a software developer myself, questions hmm. like that. interest me though.
1: Yeah, I bet. All right. Next up is
0: studying openings, studying openings. I'm going to give that a six. Okay. But for some people I would give it a three. And for some people I would give it a nine. So, uh, that's another thing like online blitz where people really get fooled into doing too much of it. I do a ton of opening study. It's almost an addiction of mine. i again because i find it kind of fun okay it's important to have good openings this is really a quality over quantity of time you know um my strongest student he's really not someone who's poured over the opening books he plays the opening well though it's not outlandishly strong for a player his level but he gets positions he knows understands and likes he tends not to really mix things up um He gets quality positions without doing anything fancy. I really like to push my opponent to the edge and play maximalist chess unless I sense they want that kind of game. And then I'll kind of pull it back a bit, play a calmer game. So I think it's I think chess openings can kind of be a poor substitute for chess understanding if you just book up but don't really know what's going on. Um, Maybe I should give it lower than a six. If you're a strong player, it's pretty important. But it's just, there's so many more things that are more important. I would so, think if you're what, spending ten, if you're spending ten to fifteen percent of your study times on time on openings, I think that's a pretty healthy amount. Um, I don't see any reason that would be wrong if you're doing it well. But I hear of a lot of people who spend more than half their study time on openings, and that's completely misguided unless uh, they're a twenty-eight hundred.
1: Yeah, I mean at least you know yeah. twenty twenty four hundred or something. I, I basically really? I basically agree. One follow up I did have about openings though is that in thinking about your winning the Portland State Championship um, and knowing that it's like a you know reasonably sized city but I'm guessing you encounter Oregon. the same same players uh fair, fairly fr- sorry the Oregon State Championship. Uh, yeah. I'm guessing you and you encounter the yeah. same players fairly frequently. So Yeah, and that's and, like the uh, top level
0: circuits like that too.
1: Yeah, but yeah. but more for the club player like the the person more likely to be to be listening to this. Yeah. Um, what advice do you get for people who play the same players repeatedly? What do you uh, do in terms of opening uh, without revealing too many secrets? How do you sure. approach openings in those situations?
0: Sure. Um, and again, I'll name drop someone. Uh, I met, had the pleasure to meet a very, very legendary figure in chess recently, Jay Bonin at the Marshall Chess Club when I went there. And uh, he's a very friendly guy, a legend. I believe he's won more tournaments than anyone else in American chess and possibly global chess. He just, he plays every weekend. He always has. He's played since the seventies. He's an IM and he's just, just really kind of a legend of the New York chess scene. And, um, he wrote a book called active pieces. And I know he has a whole chapter called, OU again, where he talks about exactly this problem. So I haven't finished that chapter yet, but I bet there's some really good advice in there. I would say, the biggest thing is uh, know your enemy, kind of. You need to know what they like and what they don't. So, I mean, one of the toughest games in the Oregon State Championship for me was against my student, and I'm not going to go into specifics, but I had an inkling about what type of game would get the kind of dynamism I wanted, and maybe would hit him, and maybe would hit him in a place where I could outplay him. And uh, I also had that against the player who took second. I maybe thought of some opening they would be weak against and um yeah i if somebody i know regularly it's less about preparing a novelty for them because i really don't want to play that game honestly some people get really into uh prepping very deep and there are some moments when there's a time and place for that like if you're playing an opening you know to be good and your opponent plays something against it like you're playing something that's a good opening you know uh queen c2 against an imzo indian the english attack against an eyedorf you know it's a solid sound opening and you know it well and your opponent plays something in it and you want to get them i don't think there's anything wrong with prepping deeply there and i've done it because you're ready if they don't play it but if you're prepping something that's unnatural to you and is way outside of your repertoire uh because you think your opponent's gonna do a certain thing i think you're really uh letting something that shouldn't be a factor in the game be a factor. A lot of times your opponent will smell a rat. They'll be like, wait, something's up here. Let me take this out of the channels he's going for. And then suddenly you're in some French line you don't know or something, and you just have to make it up. Um, So I think when you play someone, it's good to uh, get a feel for what pace of game they do or don't want, um, that maybe this player really likes chaotic positions and you – Uh, play very solid controlled chess or maybe they like solid controlled chess and you throw them a curveball early i think it's more about these movements and pace of game especially at lower levels you know at 2700 or whatever they can all play any type of game and it's more about objective qualities but um this incredible chess book under the surface by jan marcos talks about this a lot and he talks about the objective versus the subjective qualities of an opening advantage and um for some players at 1800 level, maybe they gambit two pawns, but subjectively they're really happy and they're in their computer prep and that gives them an advantage in a practical setting. You know, there's always that side of it. Um, at stronger levels, the objective part comes more into play. So like, at my level, you know, you want to play good opening moves still, but I definitely maybe I'll throw out a slav against somebody who plays one knight f3 and 2g3 but doesn't really know what they're doing and just wants to get a normal position. It's easy for a player to end up worse than just giving black a space advantage in such a situation if they aren't really looking for the precise subtleties of the white position. Um, And maybe I've seen someone who plays E4 in a very controlled way, but maybe I throw something like the modern defense that's really going to sharpen things up. Um, You know, it's more getting a sense for these things when you play someone a lot. Rather than just busting them on move 19 in the poison pond Um yeah. it's really sensing what's good for you and what's bad for them. But objective qualities of what is simply a good position and what is a worse position become more important as you get better and better.
1: Yeah, G- great advice, I think. Yeah, and it kind <laughs> of, kind of for, for listeners who heard my interview with Alex Ipatov last week, mm-hmm. um, it kind of, uh, it it echoes that a little bit in that yeah. you just want to dig into something a little bit. <laughs> oh. But again, it's within the constraints of, uh, you know, not neglecting your chess game overall I think, <laughs> at the
0: expense of opening. Uh, you know, I know there's another question you mentioned to me that I really hope you ask at some point.
1: I'll ask it now. If you, yeah, just tell me um, since you, since. Okay. You. Because
0: you mentioned Ipatov, I thought of my good friend, Jim Tarjan, who I'm, I just played blitz with earlier today. Uh. He, he, I was going to mention Jim in response to uh, that question I'm alluding to, but Jim played Ipatov at a tournament in Seattle recently. And Ipatov played this, uh, create, you know, this is what Ipatov does in the opening. And this is actually how a lot of top players are playing. The Queen's Gambit declined with White now. He played this very refined setup where against normal, like solid black moves that, uh, say some club player might play. It's just going to be a normal, slightly better Queen's Gambit structure for white. But if black plays the critical grandmaster level moves, there's this insanely sharp plan white can play with an early H4 and G4 and a Queen's Gambit decline. And, you know, black is castled short and he has the hook. This is a great positional concept to know. A pawn that's flung out mm-hmm. so that it can be attacked. Uh, all the, like, Dvoretsky and Agar guard those guys talk about it. Anyway, um, so White's saying that because there's a pawn on H6 and the White King is ca- Black King is castled short and the White King's in the center, White can go nuts and play H4, G4, G5 and try to mate Black, or even if he doesn't mate him, gain huge positional concessions. So Ipatov had prepared in this vein against Jim and it hit the board and it just took one wrong step by Jim in this crazy position that is actually totally positionally justified for White you know black equalizes with precise play but it's not a ridiculous way to play and ipatov ended up getting a seriously advantageous end game out of this crazy g4 h4 line after that one little slip so like to me that was sort of a microcosm of how when it's a 2650 playing a 2450 the subtleties that win the opening there it's just such a high level anyway cool. you can go ahead and ask the no, question
1: no no that's a good story and i just want to add a few things just a, a yeah. little a little more background. Number one, Alex had Alex Zipotov had mentioned he's got his, he's got a book of off peat openings for white coming out. So I I'm saw guessing, that guessing that game might be in it. And it uh number be. two, just want to make sure our listeners know that, that Jim Tarjan is kind of a U.S. legend in himself. And yes. he, he made it a lot of news a few years back when he beat Kramnik. And was it yes.
0: Isle, Isle of man?
1: Was it? Uh, it was the Isle of man. Yes. Yeah. And
0: that was the story I was going to mention. And you know, and it's funny because Jim is, it's been my good fortune that in my humble city of Portland, Oregon, um, Jim had the decency to move here upon his retirement. And, um, you know, as, as I'm one of the stronger players in the area, he, he, we met at some early stage and, uh, you know, we, be, we became good friends. And this is what I talk about, about how valuable it is to have good friends who are, uh, passionate about chess and happen to be stronger than you. It's, a You know, I'm not friends with him only because of that, but it's certainly very convenient for me to get to learn from his wisdom. And uh, I can't say enough good things about both his chest strength and uh, how nice of a person he is. And uh, yeah, anyway, go ahead and ask the question. There'll be more to say about Jim then.
1: Okay, let me uh, let me find it Mm -hmm. going off script here. Sure. Um, Oh, oh, here we go. Is this the uh, the one about no chance at all? Yes. Yes. Okay. One. So, from Mister Moonmaster nine thousand listeners will will know will will start to be familiar with this the mysterious Moonmaster. We got to get a sound drop for him. Um, he <laughs> sends in a lot of questions, and his name always cracks me up. But mm-hmm. more importantly, Moonmaster. Um, oh, and I actually I meant to do this in the introduction. So. I wanted to read the lead paragraph to, so you did a write up when you won the Oregon State Championship. Yeah. So this is the lead into this question. So, um, and you say in your, your opening paragraph um for the northwest chess magazine um you say i dedicate my 2019 oregon chess championship to anyone who started playing chess quotes too late chess is a young man's game and today's elite players were yesterday's 14 year old gms what hope does a player like myself who had a u.s chess rating below 1200 at the start of college have against such bright minds no chance at all it turns out but a player who develops an interest in chess ha- as an adult absolutely stands a chance of winning the championship of a state of three and a half million people i really See. wish i heard, I had remembered to read that at the beginning so listeners just pretend that i did you know <clears throat> um move it forward in your minds but um uh so Moonmaster master asked a follow-up question to that um because i quoted that in the little uh intro i wrote of you which is what why do you believe you have quote no chance at all against these bright minds You've already accomplished so much at a time in your life when your time is clearly limited. Anyone who would tell you that you can't go further is either jealous of what you've already accomplished or afraid of what you might become. Preach Moonmaster. All right. So,
0: (laughs) so go ahead, Jason. I like his attitude. So let me say, uh, and I knew this is harder to convey in writing, but I wanted to put it in there anyway. That's some of my dry sense of humor coming through. I like to think of it as dry. Anyway, I, I like to think of it as subtle deadpan. It's, it may be none of those things at any rate. So what I mean by that is these people not only discovered chess at an early age, uh, you know, there's a certain level of chess player where this is their livelihood. The, that chess is for, (laughs) for them, chess is what they do. Chess is what they live and breathe. Um, and I don't mean to say by any means I can't, I can't get good enough to beat someone of any given strength. And Jim's case is really uh, a good illustrator of that, that Jim, who certainly is not, nothing to shake a stick at. Jim uh, was surely one of the top 50 players in the world at his peak. But the fact is, if players have difficulty replicating the results of, uh, say, 20-year-old or even 45-year-old GMs when they're in their 60s, as Jim is, and as a result, Jim, his fee day is in the low 2400s. But Jim was able to beat a 2800 plus player um, on a given day. And, you know, I look at myself, there's no reason I couldn't be a fee 2400 plus. There's no reason I couldn't do it. There's no reason I couldn't beat someone like Vladimir Kramnik on a given day if I got good enough. And uh, Moon Master is right in that. But what I mean with a quote like that is I do think it's important to realize that um, discovering chess when I did, I do not want to pursue the life of a ch- professional chess player. That's not the path I want. And um, while I could beat someone very strong on a given day, it's not my intent in life to become higher rated than Magnus Carlsen. Uh, and, you know, if I set my mind to it, if that were the mission of my life, maybe I would. It's To be blunt, it's not my highest priority. It would be very nice to beat Magnus Carlsen someday. And I do think that one should set their aspirations at whatever level they see fit, um, whatever level they really want to be at. Um, But when I think about how much else life has to offer and my passions for things like writing, uh, both fiction and journalism or nonfiction, when I think about coding, when I think about sports, when I think about my passion for working with numbers and data, my programming, chess is one of my favorite things, but it's another thing in there. And there's too much else I want to accomplish to want the sole ambition of my life to be to maximize my feed rating. So I hope that answers Moonmaster's question. You can do whatever you set your mind to, but that's not what I'm setting my mind to.
1: Okay, that that's interesting. Yeah, that's a that's a yeah.
0: really good answer. And I and I do hope to pursue feed a title someday. You know, I'd have to demarcate a certain amount of time for that. I have to say, I'm taking vacations to these norm tournaments. I'm taking vacations to these feed rated events, and I do make time for that. I went to New York recently. Um, I'm probably going to Vegas in June. These are for big feed aerated rated events. Um, and there will probably come a time in my life when I want to get down to boosting my feed aerating rating or uh, Lord willing, making I am norm someday. And uh, now is not that time, but I do really uh, look forward to a point in my life when I can really put my mind to getting better at chess.
1: That would be awesome because you're not doing so bad right
0: now, but... Oh, you know, I... And I know people might go look at my rating chart after this, but rating is just a summary of your recent performance. And, you know, it's interesting. I never talked about this earlier. This is a really good topic is I had a concussion last year and that was a definitely had an impact on my chest. I was out of the loop for a while recovering from it. And uh, that's a, that's a whole adversity story that I think, to me at least, is almost a more compelling narrative than me learning chess at a late age is me bouncing back from a concussion after which i had a horrible drop off my results i had horrible physical limitations with headaches um well this is a whole other topic and that could be another podcast unto itself but to me um i'm really optimistic about my chess i'm really happy about where i'm at right now i i know uh my performance has been consistently like mid 2200s lately But, um, you know, I think you really need to go out and play stronger competition. And if anyone sees my rating history, they'll see I'm mostly playing lower rated players lately. That's what tends to be there when you're the state champion. You're playing lower rated players in state. Um, I think you have to go pursue stronger competition. You have to go challenge yourself to play up. And uh, whenever I decide I want to really make that push to become the next level of master, that's what I'm going to do. I hope it'll be soon. I have a few more goals in other fields of life I want to check off. Before I get really in to going to maybe like ten V-rated events a year, hmm, uh, okay. But it's on the list, and I will do it, and I hope to go much farther in chess than I am now.
1: Awesome! It, it'll be fun. It'll be fun to track your progress, and uh, <laughs> thanks, ben. Yeah, and
0: hopefully you can report
1: back at some point. I, not not that we're not that we're done with this list, but <laughs> but just just <laughs> putting that in there now. Um, sure. All right, uh, next up for getting back to the uh, list of um, how helpful various things are for your chest, sure. uh, exercise. 10. Well, that's Absolutely. another one Ten. there's a lot of consensus on. Yeah, I don't know how because, much of it would be just like peer pressure because you no, no one's yeah. going to be like, ah, exercise, who cares? You know, just play, play good look, moves.
0: Exercise and physical fitness, which includes sleep. So it includes like actually it's interesting. Like physical fitness also provides a bit of a buffer. If you're tired, like if you're tired, you don't get enough sleep. You're stressed out. Physical fitness can carry you through a lot of those obstacles. And it's no accident that, you know, what I said earlier about, if you go to the senior championships, they have, I think classes for above 50 and above 65. And you see that the level of play consistently dips. There are still some incredibly strong players at those level, much stronger than me. Um, I don't even know where Jim is ranked above 65. I know he's been number one in the U S but globally, there's a lot of Russian players who are over 2,500 feet at that age. Um, And so it's consistent that as people get into older age uh, performance dips. And I think, I mean, that is absolutely a factor of physical fitness. And I mean, not that older people aren't physically fit, but you know, I mean, it's a, we're strongest when we're younger and it's a very slow decline, you know, very slow. We're still very strong at older ages, but, um, and, um, if you're healthy, if you're doing cardiovascular exercise, you know, I'm not going to try to be a fake doctor here and say what kind of exercise is best. Um, but I think you'll consistently find that the strong players are gym rats that I know Sam. And I say that in a loving way that that means people who maybe were look, weren't looked at as the most athletic kid in their school, or maybe, you know they were the chess player, but have really become incredibly physically fit people. You're going to see that along among a lot of strong players. And actually, the interest in sports is very pervasive among strong players. I know Vasio Grav and Carlson are huge NBA fans like us. And I, I was amused to see Carlson's latest chess twenty four username as Magzie Bogues. Yeah, um, funny. NBA players listening to or NBA fans listening to this will get the reference if they have been following long enough the shortest player in NBA history, Muggsy Bogues.
1: Yeah. And, uh, yeah, another, uh, oh, man, I wish I remembered who on Twitter told me it was, um, George the Conqueror maybe, but apparently Magnus's prior title, Dr. Well, Dr. Uh, Dr. Dr. Drunkenstein. That's based on like a seventies NBA player, Daryl Griffith, uh, who's
0: nicknamed Dr. Duncanstein. You know, I didn't even know that, but that's absolutely sounds like a seventies nickname. Yeah. And it, it was a great pleasure. Actually, uh, the guy who finished second to me in the Oregon Championship, Carl Hessler, who's won it four or five times, I believe. He um, he was featured in a Wall Street Journal article about that touched on Magnus Carlson and the Golden State Warriors. How uh, Clay Thompson actually? Um, so I grew up around two NBA players who are now stars. Uh, Kevin Love and Clay Thompson were both in my Oregon hometown. Um, Clay moved away at some age. But yeah, Kevin was in my high school. And anyway, um, I know Clay learned chess from Carl Hessler. And uh, oh, okay. they interviewed yeah. Carl for this Wall Street Journal article. I remember about, that article. Yeah, ma- uh, yeah about Magnus Carlsen uh, hanging out with the Golden State Warriors. And, you know, he Carlson is a huge NBA fan. He was all for it. They thought it was just awesome to have Magnus hanging out with them. And, you know, I root against the Warriors with all my heart. But they are incredible people. I really like the warriors as people and it was cool to see how into chess they got
1: yeah yeah for sure it doesn't doesn't hurt chess's
0: image chess, either chess transcends all kinds of boundaries it's not a nerdy game i mean it's a very it's a meta you know it's the metaphor for everything intellectual whenever uh, something is getting very strategic when it's getting very rigorous when it's getting smart chess is always in invoked and i think that's really symbolic of uh both some actual traits of chess and just the status the game holds in our society which i think is always that's an undeniable part of its charm that it's that people think we're all geniuses because we're good when any of us who've been at chess tournaments know that's not the case um some people just have a genius for chess um yeah and um it really transcends all walks of life and that's one thing i've always been fascinated by
1: Okay, so just two more on the list. Uh, sure. study, studying end games, you're, you touched on this
0: earlier. You're, you're naming all the good ones. This is a 10, and specifically end game studies, because um, end game studies exercise all parts of your chess mind. They exercise your. It's like there's three things. I'm going to forget all of them, but one of them is imagination, one is calculation, and ooh, what is it? Knowledge is the other one. Those are like. I forget, maybe this is an all-guard thing, maybe it's someone else, but those are like the three pillars of chess strength. And endgame studies work on all those. They bring out your creativity. They bring out... They help you learn how to clinically finish an endgame. All strong players are endgame players. Um, You know, at at an event like the Oregon Championship, the endgames were vital to my success. Um, I, you, you know, I think... I made plenty of mistakes in that tournament, but p- perhaps fewer in the end game than anywhere else. Um, yeah, they just swing and, so many results, you know? Right, they swing, like, because that's the decisive phase of the game. And also, a lot of players just are too lazy to work on them. Or, like, there's some misguided... I just have never gotten why people say endgames are boring. I could study those all day. I love them. Um, and it's not just because I like the results they bring me, but... um I find it very... It's like they're almost more like like theoretical math or something. It's like, you know, what's what's opening is theory. It's like what's believed. It's not what's proven. And the end games are what's proven a lot of the time. So I think uh, many people have said it, that uh, if there's one book you're going to study and you want to make chess grandmaster or master, international master, it's Devoretsky's Endgame manual. Um, Very hard... Um, but maybe like people are intimidated by its reputation a little more than they should be. Certainly anyone who's 2,000-plus should be able to solve a lot of the exercises in there. Um, And even if you don't solve it, if you try very hard, you'll still get a lot out of it, Um, and you'll learn your theoretical endgames down pat. I would vouch for studying through some less cumbersome endgame book all the way through so that you don't have to wait until however long it takes you to read 200 pages to get to your rook endings, you know, that you start with the Silman. And then when you're 1800 or 2000, you read Jesus still has hundred end games. You must know, which is incredible. I've read it three times and I'll hope to read it three times more. At least, um, I think you study end games, you learn them. Well, you revisit them because it even very strong grandmasters forget their strong end games. It's hard. Um, Dvoretsky's tragic comedy in the endgame, he talks about swimming in theory, and that's the name of the first chapter, where like all the rook endgames kind of look f- the same at a certain point, especially when you're under the bright lights, when you reach an endgame after 40 moves of a chess game. It's four hours deep into the game. You've got, you're burning to just like get this game done with, and suddenly you've got this like crazy complex rook ending, and you're like, I think I remember this one, but you're not sure. And, uh, it takes a lot of practice to really get them down. And rook endings they occur in something like twelve percent of all chess games. You know how often does your favorite opening come up? Maybe three percent, five percent at most. Uh, rook endings are twelve percent, and rook endings are much. They can be much more empirically studied. You know you could study an opening for four hours and then you never put it to use because somebody just doesn't play it the way you expect, or you studied it superficially. If you study Rook and for four hours and you're playing chess, you're you're going to put that knowledge to use. It's just going to happen.
1: Ex- yeah, excellent advice. And that De La Villa book is available on Chessable, which is a good way to drill it. Um, yeah. yeah, so, yeah, that's well said. Um, I think we're done with the list. I mean, I have on this list, I have GM games and online videos, but you've already talked about online yeah, videos. Yeah, and I
0: would give online videos a bit lower of a score than the others, maybe like a six or seven, because... Yeah. The, just because the quality varies. If yeah. you find the very best ones, and uh, let me plug melakachians on chess.com, I, I, I'm i aware you may have affiliations with other sites. Um, no, I know really in not. Chess24, there are some very good ones. Those are the only two sites I've really used. Um, and I've bought some chess-based videos. There may be very good sites I haven't used, like I know chess of all I've heard about. Um, and I know um, Svidler's videos on Chess24, certainly Jan Gustafson's. Um the use of and Devoretsky ones on Chess 24 are just incredible um and really a joy to go through. Um so if if they're a high quality and it doesn't have to be by a big name, sometimes there's some FM or like weaker player who puts together this incredible video series. It's just wonderful. Um but if you really find some quality, it's good. But it's with the caveat that the active learning is always where it yeah. happens. If you just sit there and watch the video and make the moves, you're not you're not going to get as much out of it as yeah, no, you No
1: multitasking.
0: Yeah. No more. Oh, sir. Uh, not, no question. If you're spacing out what, like you're wasting your time. Yeah. Um,
1: okay. And so just two more topics, Jason, if, if yeah. you have the time. Absolutely. Uh, awesome. So you mentioned in the email, and I just wanted to make sure that we'd hit the topic of uh, you had some general chess coaching advice or stories. Sure. Um,
0: well, I want to say that, I want to touch on my experience with some students because uh, to me, I think, let me say, I'm not promoting my coaching abilities because honestly it's something I do for fun rather than for a living. And because I get a lot out of it, I get fulfillment from seeing my students really learn the game well. And um, you know, I actually learn a lot about chess from it too. Um, my strongest student and always student, I, there may be a few other people who ask me for a lesson like every few months and I'm like, sure. Um, but his name is Gavin Zhang. He's 16 years old and he just made a 2100 USCF. Um, I really think I've hit a system that works with this particular player. I mean, and with others, but um, different players need different things, but there's some things that everyone needs to get. And what I've been very, what I've really tried to do as a coach. And again, I would plug, find a coach who's good for you and stick with them. Um, it's having someone who's watching over your chest and sort of is always has a good eye for what you're doing, for how your chest goes and has been watching you since you were weaker. I mean, there are things they're going to point out that you're going to take a long time to photo- notice on your own. Um, and Really, I've been what I've been says to do. And Gavin is really a coach's dream. I mean, he studies very hard at chess. If you give him a book, he's just he's really going to enjoy it. And um, he's going to do the studying. You know, I mean, it's every coach's dream to be able to give homework to a student to whatever extent. And they're going to do it. But the homework, I ask, is pretty reasonable. It takes like an hour or two a day at most. Um, (laughs) That's a lot. But any well, I mean, he's happy to do it, you know. Right. Um, And I probably wouldn't work with a student who's like, nah, I'm never going to study except when I come here. I I just don't think that's, maybe they should find another coach who's more used to that. To me, it's like, I really want to help them on that journey and not be their sole source of advice. Um, And what really has helped is Gavin is uh, very strong in certain. He has some incredible strengths. Um, He's very, I mean, he just has this incredible, uncanny ability to defend where um, it's almost like, at blitz speed, he can produce these incredible tactical defensive tries in even inferior positions. And it's just really something to see them come out. Uh, and that happened even when he was still a class A player. It was just, I didn't teach him that he already had that. I, but I think a couple of things that I practice as a coach and yeah, he was 1900 when we started working together a year and a half ago. So he's, he's had a good year and a half. Um, and I think the two things you want to work on most are your weakest point and your strongest point because hmm. your strongest point is where you're most likely to score your big scalps from. Like if you beat someone 200 points higher than you offense, cause you got them in your type of game, you got them in a position type that you really excel in you, you know, whether it's your positional sense, your, your calculation, your intuitive ability to attack um, your end game technique, or your preparation in the London system. Whatever it is, it's that's usually how you do it. But your weaker point is often how you blow games you shouldn't yeah. lose. Yeah, so it's like you really want to make sure that those are both finely tuned. And, um, and also, like you want to get a sense for what they lacked in their chess education. And um, for me, I really think studying the great games of the past is a huge thing. And you can see you in the games of Magnus Carlsen and Gary Kasparov and Bobby Fischer – you know, the three names that come up the most often when they talk about the greatest to do it. You can see their passion for the great chess of the past. I mean, Kasparov wrote many books on the topic. You can see Magnus's diligence in studying games of the past. And, of course, Fisher, his work ethic on study is well known. Um, and you can see Carlson trod out some idea that Lasker used in 1920 all the time. And that was something I showed Gavin in the le- in our most recent lesson was I walked him through some old games and showed sort of how some more modern games by Carl Sinner, uh, Caruana can trace their lineage back to these older games. And I showed like some things you'll learn from these older games. Like we went through some Rubinstein games and I was saying like, if somebody says Rubinstein is a greater rook end game player, then insert 2750 plus here. Nobody is going to tell you you're crazy. That's a totally reasonable thing to contend. I mean, these players from the past have so much to teach us. They were good at so many things. Uh, the, I think it can be really glaring, some of the things they lacked, maybe opening knowledge or maybe went for some positional decision that's now frowned upon widely. Um, and But the things they're strong on, they're just imposing their will. And um, I really have tried to in, evoke this excitement for the great games of the past in my in my younger students especially because they may – Most of the top level games they've seen maybe were Carlson playing, Caruana playing. And, um, you know, I want to show them how much there is to this chess world that they haven't even gotten into, just how deep the rabbit hole goes, you know? Yeah, for sure. Sure. And so I really, I really think uh, the things I do as a coach are pretty simple. And the biggest one is really be that person standing over the student's shoulder and seeing what they're missing in their chess and what they have, what they've been neglecting. And really just sort of with an unbiased eye because I'm able to look at their games and really just kind of re- have this revolted expression when they make a bad move that shows a lack of understanding. It's like I'm able to stand there and say, you know, Gavin is stronger than me in some areas, but I can say like, Oh, you're really lacking this. You're really lacking that just because I'm looking over his shoulder, even though I'm not that much stronger than him because I've been in that capacity for as long as I have It, means that I can still give value as a coach. And I think that's something to really look at when you're finding a coach is uh, someone who's able to sense sense your tendency as well. And even if it's someone who's not that much stronger than you, ideally it would be someone who's, you know, very good and an experienced coach. But what you really want is that sort of, them to be able to see that uh, side of you and also to talk you through your harder moments to really make sure you're uh, not getting too down on yourself. To Mm -hmm. up on yourself i think a lot of these things are the most important things in a coach and i think there's this misguided impression oh we want a grandmaster coach for our kid and i just i I think that's a really misguided attitude that's really prevalent Uh, there's a lot of very strong grandmaster coaches but it's just you want to make sure you're looking for the right qualities in a coach
1: good advice Mm -hmm. okay jason last topic um so you you've sprinkled book recommendations throughout (laughs) and and one specific thing i wanted to follow up on was when you mentioned uh end game studies and how important they are um i was curious if you had any specific recommendations for
0: Uh, all right on this one you have to let me uh cater to players my level (laughs) end game studies are very hard um if if a young if a weaker player uh, sorry that's a demeaning word to use um I should say someone who's weaker than my level, like someone who's, I don't know, let's say below 1,800. I think at that level, you really want to find what's fun for you in the endgame. Find something that will spark you to find them fun. I actually really like the Irving Chernev book on Capablanca's endgames. Yeah, he's a little too adoring of Capablanca's play, um, but it's actually quite good, and it really uh, is digestible for a a player who's not, you know, master strength. Sorry, I, I keep... Not wanting to say weaker player. Um, anyway, studies for a lower rated player. Ooh. I Burned Rosen had a book called Chess and Game Training that was very good. Uh, I think it's out of print, so I don't know if you can get a, get your hands on it. Um, let me. What was see. the author's name? Burnt Rosen. I think it's. I forget exactly how it's spelled. It looks B E R N D T. Maybe I might be wrong on that. Okay. Uh, uh, yes, yeah, I think is it gambit or. Chess, I think, yeah. And um, let me say, uh, there, the my favorite I've come across is John Nunn. There's that name again. Endgame challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very hard. So I mean, I'm talking to 2,000 plus players. If you're not 2,000 plus, you're going to find a few studies in there that you can solve, but it's going to take a lot of energy. Even for me, you know, those are quite an ordeal. Solve and them. how do you how do you approach them like are you giving up I, at some point or let me say those are the end game studies are the one position type where i break my cut off of 15 minutes rule i think you have to let let the process happen with an end game study you have to be willing to spend an hour on an end game study wow or okay i mean if they're hard enough you might have to calculate super deep um and an hour is pretty extreme, but some of them, it's what it takes. <laughs> yeah. No, Irina
1: um, crush told a similar story. Um, yeah. I mean, others, I, I've heard others say limit it, but
0: yeah. But I mean, like if you're doing end game studies like that, that take an hour, that's like one a day. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, Melic told me this and I should have name dropped this earlier that, uh, there's two kinds of tactics training. There's the boom, boom tactics, the ones that you want to be able to calculate fairly quickly. Um, couple minutes or something or maybe less uh and then there's the really hard calculation problems and end game studies fall in that category and like the really hard calculation puzzles you do like one or two per session you know the ones that really strain you to your utmost it's like it's like doing like aerobic versus anaerobic exercise um and yeah i've made this weightlifting analogy with tactics a few times it's like your brain doing that um, anyway, I also think uh, Dvoretsky is a book that's like ch- endgame studies for practice for the tournament player. I may be butchering that name, but it's very good. Um, also, I think a lot of endgame studies are just kind of. I think I'm sure you can find a lot on the internet. Yeah, um, you can. Yeah, you probably can. Um, just look up like endgame study prize winners. I think you want to avoid the really gimmicky studies. I really hate ones that want you to like find a forced mate where. In two, where there's like obviously you're like up a queen or something. I I really don't have a lot of like I kind of enjoyed grinding through that in the Polgar puzzles. Honestly, like to me, like that can be kind of fun, but like sometimes it's just super gimmicky and it's just like that's not a practical chess problem. You take the mate in four if you see it. You don't care if there's a mate in two. Yeah, you take yeah. like you. It's better to win a queen than calculate a force mate in seven. You know, um, and. Uh, so, as long as you're finding ones that aren't like super ridiculous and non practical, uh, they can be non practical up to an extent as long as they're making you exercise calculation in a way that's not convoluted with like nine knights on the board or something. I think my favorite comment from a chess endgame study was one where one side had two knights and was able to promote a pawn, and they said, you must remember that three nights generally win against one night. And I was like, what? Remember, when was I supposed to learn that? Right. <laughs> I was imagining someone saying, ah, three nights versus one night. Every Russian school board right. that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, I think I'm going to skip it. And I imagine this little voice in my head saying, ah, but you'll have only yourself to blame if you one day fail to win three nights versus one night in practice. It's like, dang it. I got to learn it now. Um, I, I did eventually. Hmm. Um, yeah. Cool. So anyway, like end game studies, find quality ones and don't do too many. And again, end game manual by Deboretsky. Those are all end game studies, the puzzles there. So that's really the best one above all.
1: Okay. And for, for lower rated players, do you think end game studies are, are equally important or. or is... I think if, you know,
0: I'm pretty far removed from that level of play. And I, you normally, have a good sense for what's going on there, but most of my students I work with are at least eighteen hundred. I, okay. I can't remember the last time I took someone under that, but I think at that level, um, you know, Dvoretsky only took like twenty two hundred plus or something. Um, just I think it's best to specialize a little bit. But um, I, I imagine, yeah, that Rosen book I mentioned is pretty good. Those aren't. I think it's best to avoid those soup. Because a lot of the endgame studies I have in mind, they make use of, like, your knowledge of the stuff that's in endgame manual. They make use of the fact that you know all these theoretical endgames because they can end in those. Or actually, you know, there's that series of books about, like, one night saves the day. One Yeah, concert. the new ones, yeah. Yeah, El- you know, those Ruby. are what I would yeah. recommend to players. Those are doable. Those are yeah. going to be hard for someone under 1800, but they can do some of those. Okay, yeah. that's my answer. Okay. Um, mm-hmm.
1: Cool. Cool. All right, any other books that, that you want to mention before I let you go, Jason? I feel like you
0: you've, know, you've probably already you know,
1: named like 20 books. So. I've
0: named so many that I don't want to give information overload. I think there's a few that I'd really highlight as some of the greatest books I've read. Uh, chess Structures yep. uh, by Flores Rios. Yep. Uh, uh, one of the best books on positional chess I've ever read because it's all about or strategic chess. Because knowing all those fundamental pawns, is just something that... Someone who wants to be a master expert just has to do. Every master is a master of pawn structures. Um, And uh, again, those other two I mentioned, Under the Surface by Jan Marcos and Positional. Play by Galfan. Positional positional, decision making by Kahlon. Those are just incredibly good. Um, The Attacking Manual books by Jakob Agard. I mentioned Vukovic's Art of Attack. I think those Attacking Manual books by Agard are a modern improvement on that. Maybe they're catering to a slightly higher level but only slightly than those i would say for players my level uh augard and dvoretsky's books are some of the best out there you can just never go wrong if you pick up a book by one of those guys and what specifically dvoretsky and augard give is they give you that active learning they give you that training all those puzzles um i would also say i actually talked a surprisingly small amount about openings for how I'm kind of in a like that's one of the things I'm better at. But Okay, uh, interesting. I think um, I think you know that we'll be leave that aside. That could be the topic of another podcast unto itself about how to opening prepare. But okay. um, uh, I was going to name some books. You were, authors write incredible opening books, like Boris Abrook. Uh, of course, is just I mean everything. He's not a twenty seven hundred plus grandmaster, but I tell you, everything he publishes becomes fashion at those levels. Everything yeah, on he recommends becomes contested, becomes the hot theory, and uh, I think that says a lot. And Paramarj on Meiji, you know, it's unfortunate. Maybe he—I don't know if he's ever going to finish those books on E four for quality chess. Maybe I know he's a software developer too. I think I know he was studying computer science at least. Uh, I hope he one day finishes those because those were some of the best books on E four I've ever read. Well, no, they were the best, and, wow, um, wow. you know. Uh, but the thing is, a uh, repertoire on the sharpest E4 lines can only stay uh, theoretically viable for so much time. But um, he was like the Avrukh for E4, the guy who just everything he published became a uh, reality, you know, that became the hot line that became. I think he busted some other people's lines uh, in the French winnower um, and uh, me and my good friend, <laughs> Matt. Have uh, I'll leave his last name out so people can't prep for him. But he um I played him in the Oregon Championship. He was the defending champ. He um he he and I have had many theoretical duels based on Paramarjan Niji's uh, win over in Blitz games and in tournament games and uh it's funny just like <laughs> Matt himself has advanced the theory <laughs> past where it was in the Nagi books because he has prep files on like all the lines in there. But do you
1: have a few tarashes in the games you're in? Yeah, at, so? that,
0: that's part of why i I didn't want to I didn't want to go into that against him. It's just even if I get a theoretical advantage, oh gosh, it's I've learned not to play it against him in tournaments. Um, yeah, that's
1: funny. So yeah, that <laughs> sort of gets into what we were so talking
0: fun. about earlier. Um, no, but the tur- I switched to the tarash just because. You know, it's like Knight C3 is often viewed as the sharp, enterprising move, but the Winner is really a different type of game than... uh, I don't know if it's... Like, the Winner is very strategically unbalanced. Um, You know, White actually has to defend against a Black initiative in a number of lines. I I actually think Knight D2 might be more the attacking player's move of choice in some circles. Hmm. Um, You know, Vashio Agrav always played it. Wei Yi, uh, those guys have both played some Knight C3, but more Knight D2 uh, Svidler, I think Catronius. I might be wrong about that one though. So like, there's a lot of aggressive E4 players who have turned to the Tarash and it certainly brought me good success in there. I do say in that book, and I really believe this, I don't think three knight of six is a very good move against the Tarash. I think, you know, I mean, it's of course playable and of course black can hold his own in it, but like, I can't find equality anywhere. Mm. And it's like the typical French move. And whenever anyone plays it, I get happy inside. And, uh, feel Like, I'm going to trade off those dark square bishops and play against a weak e6 pawn, uh, and a bad c8 bishop. And uh, it, it feels like white's play is quite straightforward. Um, and uh, you know, you when whenever there's a tough nut to crack, like you know, c5 in the Tarash, or uh, the Grunfeld or Nimzo if you're a d4 player, the Petrov or uh, Neidorf if you're e4, it's like you don't play with. Theoretically, objectively, best, you play what you like because black's fine everywhere. Um, that's as far as I want to go on my opening tangent. Okay, um, no, it's interesting, though. Yeah, we don't... Is, uh, Yeah, I, I feel like I could go on for a pretty long time talking about chess, honestly. But yeah. maybe we should save that for another podcast.
1: Yeah, I think we should. But, I, I mean, your enthusiasm is palpable, which is the, the main thing. <laughs> I mean, in addition to a lot of actionable yeah. advice, I mean, it's it's inspiring just to hear you talk about it. So so hey, thank you, know, you this Jason. Is,
0: and my, you're welcome. And, you know, I'd again answer, I love Moonmaster's Master's question. <laughs> All right. And I would again answer him with, you know, this is more my happy places here, writing about chess, working with my star student, these podcasts with you, and uh, these moments where I'm just sitting there with friends like Jim or Matt and uh, just having fun talking and playing chess. These are really what I live for. Um, you know, I love those moments in tournaments, too. But at the end of the day uh, I can relive like my draw against Walter Brown, where I was winning, you know, these tournament highlights now and then, but it's really these moments where my enthusiasm gets to live out. Cool. Uh, I chime through.
1: Excellent. And if listeners want to keep up with your eventual, I am quest Jason, <laughs> um, besides, uh, you know, you listen, know listening to some episodes three years
0: down the line I'm from chess. here. Tom, my name is hindsight is 2700, which I've meant to start a blog by that name for so long now. And, uh, I read a book on procrastination this year that I bought five years ago. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you've got, a you've got till Tuesday to reserve the URL. <laughs> <There's> a, <laughs> no, I already have the URL. Oh, good. Okay. Um, the, no, the workbook. Um, there's a workbook on the procrastination that, um, I'm going to start next week. It was my new year's resolution. Uh, so anyway, I, um, keep meaning to start this blog. Uh, but sort of writing that article for Northwest Chess was the kind of content I want to put on there. But I also want to put some funny stories here and there. And uh, that's where you can follow me whenever I start that blog. Okay. I'll tell you.
1: And in the meantime, I'll link to your
0: chess.com account. And, uh... Oh, don't link. To that. <laughs> I, You know, like I've been playing less on there because honestly, I kind of like, used to have a really bad temper for blitz games so some people might remember me as that guy who was oh, like oh you wow you're one of those game. oh no you know yeah you <laughs> know i'm so. really not one of those like 99 uh-huh. of the time but those one percent of moments those are why i play less online blitz because i you know those moments where i got tilted i sometimes would talk smack and i feel like some people are gonna remember me as that guy and i'm you know i'm cutthroat competitive in some ways of life but i'm I want those people who see my chess, who recognize my chess.com game to know that I love them. Okay. You know, that chess is really a great family yeah and uh, you know go ahead and link to it actually i'll I'll, I'll probably start blogging from there. okay um, cool. yeah. And, All right.
1: uh, well this has been this has been awesome. a lot of insight okay. and uh, yeah and, and congratulations and keep up the good work
0: uh, Jason. okay, thanks, Ben.
1: Thanks to everyone who makes Perpetual Chess possible. Of course, that includes Matthew Passi, my producer, and Geert Vandervelde for supplying the intro music. I also want to thank everyone who helps spread the word about the show. That includes people who tell their friends, tweet about it, share on Facebook. Apparently, Instagram is a thing. Every little bit helps grow the show. But most of all, I want to thank people who support the show financially. I've said this before, but Perpetual Chess is my most gratifying but least paying work. If everyone who listened to the show were able to kick in $1 a month, it would be my best paying and most gratifying work. So I want to thank those who are able to provide financial support. That includes extra special thanks to Chessable.com, Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, Dan O'Hanlon, Greg Shahadi, John Jernigan, and Todd Bryan. And I also want to thank all of my Patreon and PayPal perpetual partners. Here comes the list. You guys ready? Here we go. Ace Vallega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adam Vrancoge, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, Benjamin Handelman, BetterChessTraining.com, Bill Moran, Brett howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, I am Carlos Perdoma of ChessAtlanta.com, Chad Hilton, Chad Oliver, Chris Balcom, Chris Flanagan, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Chabrie, Christopher Wood. Good job, Christophers. I am Christoph Zalicki, a.k.a. Chess Explain, Coach J's Chess Academy, Daniel Gell, Daniel Ginsburg, Daniel Lucas, Daniel Naylor, Daniel Schaefer. Good job, Daniels. Dave Saylor, David Cramley of Chessville.com, Dwayne Edmonds, Ethan Smith. I am Elect Donnie Ariel Esquire, Fox Valley Chess Club of Aurora, Illinois, Frank Tortoris, MD, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vanderbilt, Gerard Barta, Giovanni Russo, Harish Srinivasan, GM Jakob Ogar of Quality Chess Publishing, James Bonastia, Jason Willem, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, John Fernandez, John Fartentain, John Hartman, Jen Shahadi, Jen's Green, Jerry Wells, John Thompson, GM Josh Friedel, Kare Christensen, WGM Katerina Namsova, Kelly Palmer, I.M. Kostya Kavutsky, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Laura Beliavsky, Lucio Casada Silva, Matthew Passi, Martin Habich, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, the Mysterious Moon Master 9000, Mr. Michael Shahadi, Nate Salon, Nathan Webster, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Pasi and Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paolo Santana, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Rob Lazorchek of DiplomatChess.com, Robert Steiner, Ryan Berg, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Steiner Lima, the Law Office of Stuart Katz, WGM, Tatyav Abrahamian, Thomas Kasper, Thomas Stanek, Thomas Tachenko, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com. His book is coming to Chessable. Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Victor Vrinkoosh, FM Zhao Cheng of Chess1000.com, and Jivko Stoyanova. Thank you, everyone, and I will catch you all next week.
0: Podcast Network.